Podcastle episode 151 for April 5th, 2011. Wizard's Apprentice by Delia Sherman. Rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson and have we got a treat for you today. Magic, an evil wizard or two, and a very special bookstore. I have to say, I love all those things, but I think I love bookstores the most. In my family, we have an iPad I read off of, mostly short stories, although I'm trying to read more novels as well. My wife, who loves books and is a voracious reader, asked for a Kindle for Christmas because her wrists were giving her trouble, and that 800-page Larry McMurtry cowboy epic wasn't helping things. Additionally, our house was, shoot, is constantly on the verge of becoming overrun with books. I guess that's a bad thing? Our nifty little e-readers are handy little devices, no mistake about it. I love that I can download a book or story in seconds and begin reading it, and don't have to worry about tripping over them all the way to the bathroom. That said, they can't even begin to make me as happy as strolling aisles lined with books. Browsing Amazon.com or the iBook store or whatever doesn't have the same jolt. For me, bookstores and libraries are about as magical as it gets. They're portals. They can take you anywhere. Narnia, Middle-Earth, Bass Log, The Dreaming, Border Town, Wonderland, Discworld, London Below, The Far Side of Hell, even to a place as exotic as Daho, Maine. That's right, Daho, Maine. Because sometimes the most magical places are hidden in the mundane, like a diamond in the rough a masterpiece, and a battered 30-year-old cover. And so it's with great pleasure I introduce you all to today's story, Wizard's Apprentice by Delia Sherman. Ms. Sherman, who last graced our earbuds with her story The Fiddler of Bayou Teche, is the author of numerous short stories that have been published in Coyote Road, Troll's Eye View, and the upcoming Ellen Datlow vampire anthology Teeth for Young Adult Readers. Her adult novels are Through a Brazen Mirror, The Porcelain Dove, and with Ellen Kushner, The Fall of the Kings. Changeling and The Magic Mirror of the Mermaid Queen are for young readers, as is The Freedom Maze, her forthcoming middle grade reader that involves time travel. Please, Mom, please! I'm telling you, it's educational! Ms. Sherman lives in New York City with her partner, Ellen Kushner. Our reader this week is the man behind the curtain at Podcastle, the white rabbit with the pocket watch who's so fond of saying, Dave, you're late, you're late, your intro's incredibly late. Our own Peter Wood, sound producer. And of course, I'm kidding. He's the epitome of manners, even though he is definitely an evil wizard. You can visit him online at livingtheliminal.com. Wizard's Apprentice was originally published at Troll's Eye View, edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling and was recently reprinted in John Joseph Adams' The Way of the Wizard Anthology. So remember, kids, never, ever judge a book by its cover, and enjoy the story. Wizard's Apprentice by Delia Sherman There's an evil wizard living in Daho, Maine. It says so on the sign hanging outside his shop, Evil Wizard Books, Z. Smallbone Proprietor. 
His shop is also his house, which looks just like an evil wizard's house ought to look. It's big and tumble down, with a porch all around it and fancy carving around the eaves. It even has a tower in which a light glows balefully red at hours when an ordinary bookseller would be asleep. There are shelves and shelves of large, moldy-smelling, dusty leather books. Bats rest in its roof, and ravens and owls nest in the pines that huddle around it. The cellar is home to a family of foxes. And then there's the evil wizard himself, Zachariah Smallbone. I ask you, is that any kind of name for an ordinary bookseller? He even looks evil. His hair is an explosion of dirty gray. His beard is a yellow-white thicket. His eyes glitter behind little iron-rimmed glasses. He always wears an old-fashioned rusty black coat and a top hat furry with age and broken down on one side. There are rumors about what he can do. He can turn people into animals, they say, and vice versa. He can give you fleas or cramps or make your house burn down. He can hex you into splitting your own foot in two instead of a log into kindling. He can kill with a word or a look if he has a mind. It's no wonder, then, that the good people of Dahomey make a practice of leaving Mr. Smallbone pretty much alone. Tourists who don't know any better occasionally go into his shop to look for bargains. They generally come out faster than they went in, and they never come back. Every once in a blue moon, Mr. Smallbone employs an assistant. A scruffy-haired kid will appear one day, sweeping the porch, bringing in wood, feeding the chickens. And then, after a month or a year... He'll disappear again. Some say Smallbone turns them into bats or ravens or owls or foxes or boils their bones for his evil spells. Nobody knows and nobody asks. It's not like they're local kids with families people know and care about. They all come from away foreign, Canada or Vermont or Massachusetts, and they probably deserve whatever happens to them. If they were good boys, they wouldn't be working for an evil wizard, would they? Well, it all depends what you call a good boy. According to his uncle, Nick Chanticleer was anything but. According to his uncle, Nick Chanticleer was a waste of three meals a day and a bed, a sneak, a liar, and a lazy good-for-nothing. To be fair to Nick's uncle, this was a fair description of Nick's behavior. But since Nick's uncle wailed the tar out of him at least once a day and twice on Sundays no matter what, Nick couldn't see any reason to behave any better. He stole hot dogs from the fridge because his uncle didn't feed him enough. He stole naps behind the woodpile because his uncle worked him too hard. He lied like a rug because sometimes he could fool his uncle into hitting someone else instead of him. Whenever he saw the chance, he ran away. He never got very far. For someone with such a low opinion of Nick's character, his uncle was strangely set on keeping him around. Family should stick together, which meant he needed Nick to do all the cooking. For a kid, Nick was a pretty good cook. He also liked having someone around to bully. In any case, he always tracked Nick down and brought him back home. On Nick's 11th birthday, he ran away again. He made a bologna and Wonder Bread sandwich and wrapped it in a checked handkerchief. When his uncle was asleep, he let himself quietly out the back door and set out walking. Nick walked all through the night, cutting through the woods and staying away from towns. At dawn, he stopped and ate half the bologna and Wonder Bread. At noon, he ate the rest. That afternoon, it began to snow. By nightfall, Nick was freezing, soaked, and starving. 
Even when the moon rose, it was black, dark under the trees and full of strange rustlings and squeakings. Nick was about ready to cry from cold and fear and weariness when he saw a red light high up and far away through the snow and bare branches. Nick followed the light to a paved road and a mailbox and a wooden sign, its words half veiled with snow. Beyond the sign was a driveway and a big shadowy house lurking among the pine trees. Nick stumbled up the porch steps and banged on the heavy front door with hands numb with cold. Nothing happened for what seemed a very long time. Then the door flew open with a shriek of unoiled hinges. What do you want? It was an old man's voice, crotchety and suspicious. Given a choice, Nick would have turned right around and gone somewhere else. As it was, Nick said, Something to eat and a place to rest? I'm about frozen solid. The old man peered at him, dark eyes glittering behind small round glasses. Can you read, boy? What? Are you deaf or just stupid? Can you read? Nick took in the old guy's wild hair and wilder beard, his old-fashioned coat and his ridiculous top hat. None of these things made Nick willing to part with even a little piece of truth about himself. No, I can't. You sure? The old man handed him a card. Take a look at this. Nick took the card, turned it upside down and around, then handed it back to the old man with a shrug, very glad that he'd lied to him. The card said, Evil Wizard Books, Zachariah Smallbone, Proprietor, Arcana, Alchemy, Animal Transformation, Speculative Fiction, Monday through Saturday, by chance and by appointment. Mr. Smallbone peered at him behind his round glasses. Hmph! You're letting the cold in. Close the door behind you and leave your boots by the door. I can't have you tracking up the floor. That was how Nick came to be the evil wizard's new apprentice. At first he just thought he was doing some chores in return for food and a night's shelter. But next morning, after a breakfast of oatmeal and maple syrup, Mr. Smallbone handed him a broom and a feather duster. Clean the front room, he said. Floor and books and shelves. Every speck of dirt mined and every trace of dust. Nick gave it his best, but sweep as he might, the front room was no cleaner by the end of the day than it was when he started. That won't do it all, said the wizard. You'll have to try again tomorrow. You'd best cook supper. There's the makings for Scrapple in the icebox. Since the snow had given way to a breath-freezing cold snap, Nick wasn't too unhappy with this turn of events. Mr. Smallbone might be an evil wizard, ugly as homemade sin, and vinegar-tongued, but a bed is a bed and food is food. If things got bad, he could always run away. After days of sweeping, the front room was, if anything, dirtier than it had been. I've met dogs smarter than you, Smallbone yelled. I should turn you into one, sell you at the county fair. You must have some kind of brain or you wouldn't be able to talk. Use it, boy. I'm losing patience. Figuring it was only a matter of time before Mr. Smallbone started to beat up on him, Nick decided it was time to run away from evil wizard books. He took some brown bread and home-cured ham from the icebox, wrapped it and his flashlight in his checked handkerchief, and crept out the back door. The driveway was shoveled, and Nick tiptoed down it toward the main road, and found himself on the porch again, going in the back door. At dawn, Mr. Smallbone found him walking in the back door for the umpteenth time. Running away? Mr. Smallbone smiled unpleasantly, his teeth like hard yellow tiles in his bushy beard. Nope, Nick said. 
Just wanted some air. There's air inside the house, Mr. Smallbone said. Too dusty. If you don't like the dust, Mr. Smallbone said, you'd best get rid of it, hadn't you? Desperate, Nick used his brain, as instructed. He started to look into the books he was supposed to be cleaning to see if they held any clues to the front room's stubborn dirt. He learned a number of interesting things, including how to cast fortunes by looking at a sheep's liver, but nothing that seemed useful for cleaning dirty rooms. Finally, behind a chair he'd swept under a dozen times before, he found a book called A Witch's Manual of Practical Housekeeping. He stuffed it under his sweater and smuggled it upstairs to read. It told him not only that there was a spell of chaos on the front room, but how to break it, which he did, taking a couple days over it and making a lot of noise with brooms and buckets to cover up his spellcasting. When the front room sparkled, he showed it to Mr. Smallbone. Humph, said Mr. Smallbone. You did this all yourself, did you? Yep. Without help. Yep. Can I leave now? Mr. Smallbone gave Nick the evilest smile in his repertoire. Nope. The wood box is empty. Fill it. Nick wasn't at all surprised when the wood box proved as impossible to fill as the front room had been to clean. He found the solution to that problem in a volume shoved out of line with the books around it, which also taught him about carrying water in colanders and filling buckets with holes in them. When the wood box was full, Mr. Smallbone found other difficult tasks for Nick to do, like sorting a barrel of white and wild rice into separate jars, building a stone wall in a single day, and turning a branch of holly into a rose. By the time Nick had mastered these skills, it was spring, and he didn't want to run away anymore. He wanted to keep learning magic. It's not that he'd gotten to like Mr. Smallbone any better. Nick still thought he was crazy and mean and ugly. But if Mr. Smallbone yelled and swore, there were always plenty of blankets on Nick's bed and food on his plate. And if he turned Nick into a raven or a fox when the fit took him, he never raised a hand to him. Over summer and fall, Nick taught himself how to turn himself into any animal he wanted. November brought the first snows and Nick's 12th birthday. Nick made his favorite meal of baked beans and franks to celebrate. He was just putting on the pot to bake when Mr. Smallbone shuffled into the kitchen. I hope you made enough for three, he said. Your uncle's on his way. Nick closed the oven door. I better move on then, he said. Won't help said Mr. Smallbone. He'll always find you in the end. Blood kin are hard to hide from. Round about dusk, Nick's uncle pulled into the driveway of evil wizard books in his battered old pickup. He marched up to the front door and banged on the door fit to knock it down. When Mr. Smallbone answered, he put a beefy hand on the old man's chest and shoved him back into the shop. Ah, no Nick's here, he said. So don't go telling me you ain't seen him. Wouldn't think of it said Mr. Smallbone. He's in the kitchen. But all Nick's uncle saw in the warm, bright kitchen were four identical black Labrador puppies tumbling under the wooden table. What in tarnation is going on here? Nick's uncle's face grew red and angry. Where's my nephew at? One of these puppies is your nephew, said Mr. Smallbone. If you choose the wrong puppy, you go away and don't come back. If you choose the right one, you win two more chances to recognize him. Choose right three times in a row and you can have him. What's to stop me from taking him right now? Me, said Mr. Smallbone. 
His round glasses glittered evilly. His bushy beard bristled. And who are you? I'm the evil wizard, Mr. Smallbones spoke quietly, but his words echoed through the uncle's brain like a thunderclap. You're a weird old geezer is what you are. I ought to turn you into the county authorities for kidnapping, but I'll be a sport. He squatted down by the puppies and started to roughhouse with them. The puppies nipped at his hands, wagging their tails and barking, all except one, which cringed away from him, whining. Nick's uncle grabbed the puppy by the scruff of the neck and it turned into a wild-looking boy with black hair and angry black eyes. You was always a little coward, his uncle said. But he said it to thin air because Nick had disappeared. Once, Mr. Smallbone said. Next, he took Nick's uncle to a storeroom full of boxes where four identical fat spiders sat in the centers of four identical fine large webs. One of these spiders is your nephew. Yeah, yeah, said Nick's uncle. Shut up and let me concentrate. He studied each spider and each web carefully, once and then a second time, sticking his nose right up to the webs for a better look and muttering angrily under his breath. Two of the spiders curled their legs into knots. The third ignored him. Nick's uncle laughed nastily. This one. Nick appeared, crouched beneath the web, looking grim. His uncle made a grab for him, but he was gone. Twice, Mr. Smallbone said. What's next? demanded Nick's uncle. I ain't got all night. Mr. Smallbone lit an oil lamp and led him outside. It was cold and dark now, and the wind smelled of snow. In a pine tree near the woodpile was a nest of four fine young ravens, just fledged and ready to fly. The big man looked them over. Nick's uncle tried to bring his face up close, but the young ravens cawed raucously and pecked at him with their strong yellow beaks. He jerked back, cursing, and pulled his hunting knife out of his pocket. Three of the ravens kept cawing and pecking. The fourth hopped onto the edge of the nest and spread its wings. Nick's uncle grabbed it before it could take off. This one, he said. Nick struggled to shake off his uncle's embrace, but when Mr. Smallbone gave a tiny sigh and said, Thrice, he is yours. He stopped struggling and stood quietly, his face a mask of fury. Nick's uncle insisted on leaving right away, refusing to stay for the baked beans. He dragged Nick out to his battered pickup, threw him inside, and drove away. The first town they came to, there was a red light. They stopped, and Nick made a break for it. His uncle jerked him back inside, slammed the door, whipped out a length of rope, and tied Nick's hands and feet. They drove on and suddenly it began to snow. It wasn't an ordinary snowstorm, more like someone had dumped a bucket of snow onto the road in front of them all at once. The truck swerved, skidded, and stopped with a crunch of metal. Cursing blue murder, Nick's uncle got out of the cab and went around front to see what the damage was. Quick as thinking, Nick turned himself into a fox. A fox's paws, being smaller than a boy's hands and feet, he slipped free of the rope without trouble. He leaned on the door handle with all his weight, but the handle wouldn't budge. Before he could think what to do next, his uncle opened the door. Nick nipped out under his arm and made off into the woods. When Nick's uncle saw a young fox running away from him into the trees, he didn't waste any time wondering whether that fox was his nephew. He just grabbed his shotgun and took off after him. It was a hectic chase through the woods in the dark and snow. If Nick had been used to being a fox, he'd have lost his uncle in no time flat. 
but he wasn't really comfortable running on four legs, and he wasn't wood-wise. He was just a 12-year-old boy in a fox's shape, scared out of his mind and running for his life. The world looked odd from down so low, and his nose told him things he didn't understand. A real fox would have known he was running toward water. A real fox would have known that water was frozen hard enough to take his weight, but not the weight of the tall, heavy man crashing through the undergrowth behind him. A real fox would have led the man onto the pond on purpose. Nick did it by accident. He ran across the middle of the pond where the ice was thin. Hearing the ice break, he skidded to a stop and turned to see his uncle disappear with a splash and a shout of fury. The big man surfaced and scrabbled at the ice, gasping and waving his shotgun. He looked mad enough to chew up steel and spit out nails. Nick turned tail and ran. He ran until his pads were sore and bruised and he ached all over. When he slowed down, he noticed that another fox was running beside him. An older fox. A fox that smelled oddly familiar. Nick flopped down on the ground, panting. Well, that was exciting, the fox that was Mr. Smallbone said dryly. He was going to shoot me, Nick said. Probably. That man hasn't got the brain of a minnow tearing off into the dark like that. Deserves whatever happened to him, if you ask me. Nick felt a most unfox-like pinch of horror. Did I kill him? I doubt it, Mr. Smallbone said. Duck Pond's not more than a few feet deep. He might catch his death of cold, though. Nick felt relief, then a new terror. Then he'll come after me again. Mr. Smallbone's foxy grin was sharp. Nope. After a little pause, Nick decided not to ask Mr. Smallbone if he was sure about that. Mr. Smallbone was an evil wizard, after all, and evil wizards don't like it if their apprentices ask too many questions. Mr. Smallbone stood up and shook himself. If we want to be back by sunrise, we best be going. That is, if you want to come back. Nick gave him a puzzled look. You won your freedom, Mr. Smallbone said. You might want to use it to live with somebody ordinary, learning an ordinary trade. Nick stood up and stretched his sore legs. Nope, he said. Can we have oatmeal and maple syrup for breakfast? If you cook it, said Mr. Smallbone. There's an evil wizard living in Daho, Maine. It says so on the sign hanging outside his shop. Sometimes tourists stop by looking for a book on the occult or a cheap thrill. In the kitchen, two men bend over a table strewn with books, bunches of twigs, and bowls of powder. The younger one has tangled black hair and bright black eyes. He is tall and very skinny, like he's had a recent growth spurt. The older man is old enough to be his father, but not his grandfather. He is clean-shaven, and his head is bald. The doorbell clangs. The younger man glances at the older. Don't look at me, says the older man. I was the evil wizard last time, and my rheumatism is bothering me. You go. What you mean, says Nick, is that you're halfway through a new spell and don't want to be interrupted. If you don't respect my authority, apprentice, I'm going to have to turn you into a cockroach. The bell clangs again. Mr. Smallbone, the older, bends over his book, his hand already reaching for a pile of black dust. Nick grabs a top hat with a white wig attached to it and crams it over his black curls. He hooks a bushy beard over his ears and perches a pair of steel-rimmed glasses on his nose. 
Throwing on a rusty black coat, he rushes to the front room, where he hunches his shoulders and begins to shuffle. By the time he reaches the door, he looks about a hundred years old. The door flies open with a creak of unoiled hinges. What do you want? The evil wizard Smallbone snaps. And welcome back. I don't know about the rest of you, but this story really made me want to grab that evil crotchety wizard in my life, give him a hug, and tell him how much he means to me. Delia Sherman told us that this story was inspired by a Russian fairy tale called The Wizard Outwitted from Fairy Tales of Many Lands, edited by H. Herda, published by Franklin Watts in 1956. She says it's a wonderful book full of fairy tales that don't fit the romance model we've gotten used to, from traditions and cultures we aren't familiar with. It taught me that there was more to fairy tales than princesses, and that happily ever after has to be earned. So very true. Thanks very much for that, Delia, and also for this story. Okay, feedback this week's for Prattcastle 145, a.k.a. Tim Pratt's Heart and Boot, read by Amy Elk. The story of a female outlaw in the Old West, her cosmic lover, and her place in the world. Interesting discussion on this one. Many people seem to enjoy it, but quite a few of you had a lack of sympathy for Pearl Hart, the story's protagonist. At least, initially. Dan Uli said the story was a fun little romp, but Pearl wasn't a very sympathetic character. The end does make me hopeful that she has changed and that her baby and she will live happily ever after, that John Boots' goodness finally rubbed off on her, but I'm naive like that. Try Harder said, I like that Hart was very flawed, mostly through her inability to love and destructive boredom, but through her extreme energy was able to create something anyway. I like that Boot was beautiful and exhausted, seeming to live only through Hart's insistence. He sort of reminded me of some really depressed people I knew when I was a teenager. And I Am A Fish said, it would be easy to write a story in which a woman gets treated poorly because of her sex, but the interesting thing about this story was that Hart was treated better than she deserved because she was a woman, and she actually resented the fact. Interesting twist on a fairly common trope. People genuinely seemed to enjoy Annie Elk's reading of this one, which was really great to hear. Also, I want to apologize for not mentioning that Pratt's story was loosely based on a pair of historical outlaws. Additionally, Wilson Folly tracked down another Heart and Boots story, also written by Tim Pratt, and posted a link to it in our forum. Check it out if you get a chance at forum.escapeartist.net. Thanks so much to everyone who took the time to tell us what they thought of that story. Head on over to the forum and let us know what you thought of this week's episode. Just remember, be cool, because the evil wizards, they are a-lurking. If you like what we're doing, please consider heading over to podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent is greatly appreciated. Your money helps shelve our flying castle with the finest in short fiction fantasy so we can bring it to the world, week after week. Thanks. Before we go, our old friend Alistair Stewart has something to share with you all. The genre for Japan. Al, you have the spotlight. Hello everyone. Um, I need to talk to you about something called genre for Japan. We are a group of English authors and editors and writers and podcasters 
who have followed the example of Authors for Japan uh, and to basically run a charity auction to try and raise money to help for help with tsunami relief. What we're planning to do is run auctions for genre-themed prizes, and, um, well, we've got a fair few in already. We'll, what we will be doing is auctioning them off on our website through Just Giving. We'll be doing this in aid of the British Red Cross Tsunami Appeal, and uh, I know that this is something which a lot of people are already giving to, and a lot, a lot of people are already donating to, and that's great. But this is a little bit different, because what we're doing is collating in some really phenomenal stuff. There are some amazing lots sitting in this auction. Uh, they'll, it'll be going live shortly on the 28th. And uh, some of the stuff we've got, well, let me go through it. First off, and I'm genuinely not making this up, this is how amazingly generous people have been, we have signed and numbered limited edition proofs of The Evolutionary Void by Peter F. Hamilton. Uh, we are selling manuscript critiques off for pe- for the winning charity bidders from people like Suzanne McLeod. She's an amazing writer. We have a signed arc of Vegas Nights by Matt Forbeck from Angry Robot Books. Um, if you've not read Matt's books before, my God, um, check him out. A Mortals is great. It's about a his first book through AR. Uh, it's about a government secret service agent who uh, is has been downloaded into his ninth body and has to investigate his own murder. Vegas Nights is Vegas-based fantasy, modern Vegas-based fantasy. It's CSI and Ocean's Eleven with magic. And if that doesn't get you excited, I'm not sure what will. We have a manuscript critique and copy edit by my friend David Moore, who works for Abaddon and Solaris. And Dave is both a phenomenal karaokeist, a long-standing Pop Will Eat Itself t-shirt wearer, and a fantastically good editor. We have signed copies of Four Tales, Once Upon a Time in the North and Lyra's Oxford by Philip Pullman. That Philip Pullman. Yeah. There's some extraordinary stuff on here. We've got some amazing lots in. If you have the money to spare for this, and I know things are tough at the moment, please bid, because you'll, you will certainly be helping someone if you win. And if you win, you'll get something amazing in return. Like I say, I know times are difficult right now, but this is one of those rare instances where the genre community can come together and do something unique. We can help. And we can get something really cool if we're in an auction as well. Um, go to genreforjapan.wordpress.com. That's the site. Everything that's uh, everything about how to auction it, how to bid on auctions, is there. Uh, check it out. They'll be a little bit more coherent than I've been. Honestly, give them a look. It's worth it. And if you can, please help. Thanks, Al. It sounds really awesome, and I hope it works out well. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for letting all of us here at Podcastle share another story with you. We'll be back next time with more zombies, courtesy of Kelly Link. Actual zombies this time, although they're, they're pretty mellow, but not merely just contingency plans. Although, you know, they're probably metaphors for something or other. But anyway, next week. If you're waiting around anyway, why not pull up a chair and stay for the baked beans and earn that happily ever after? We'll see all you evil wizards next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. 
You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Lemony Snicket said, Well-read people are less likely to be evil. <laughs>